previously on Jane Danger, a bird in a cage. Las Vegas was a quiet town where one could drink in peace and on most nights only with the occasional flirt coming up to try and stake his claim in this frequently farmed land that settled in between my legs. My name is Reginald. Reginald Marley. I had a friend, also a score composer. His name was George Mead. Hollywood is a treacherous place. It's filled with many people with fragile egos. People who don't like to have their power tested and will do anything to stay on top. You're telling me that people who make moving pictures killed your friend. I'm telling you that the people who make moving pictures will do much worse than just kill someone. Ah, here you are, Miss Danger, he said with an added enthusiasm. We've been waiting for you. Dear Reginald, as of my writing this, it is July 4th, our nation's birthday. Today I think of the term independence and what it truly means. Miss Danger. George Meade hasn't disappeared, he said with a bit of a smirk on his face. Well, whoever hired me would say otherwise. Well, it's obvious to me that whoever hired you has their information misconstrued because George Meade isn't missing. He's dead. I visited the cemetery after leaving Global Studios and saw exactly what Galvin had said. George's tombstone, placed between his two parents, and described him as being dead by the age of eight. I'm David Haas, LAPD. Where are you going? If he really was murdered here in LA, then there's a police report, correct? Is that all the interviewed witnesses described the same person to the T. They all described a black man, early 20s, dressed in all black attire, that shot the three with a revolver, 45. He wasn't wearing a mask or anything to cover his face. The person arrested for the crime was Marshall Jackson. In fact, I wasn't even at the concert hall that night. I was told to wait for the Meads outside their hotel room, and when they came to leave, I would drive into the docks. I thought they were catching a ferry out of the country. Rich people do rich things, right? That's when Galvin Young came out of the shadows. He was wearing a brown overcoat, collar up, and hat low, trying to hide his face, but he was easily recognizable. He had a 44 Magnum in his hand. I wish I could show you more, but the rest of their things were taken to a storage unit. I tried to contain my surprise as I noticed that storage unit 27 was leased under the name Marley Reginald. The black car pulled up right alongside us. The back window now adjacent to mine had lowered just enough to fit the barrel of the gun that was aimed right at me. It's my bulletproof vest. Sucker can stop anything smaller than a direct shotgun blast. I'll make some calls and see what I can do, but for now, we're getting you back to your hotel and you're lying low. Chapter 9 A Song to Cry For A few days went by as I waited for David to get my information to the right people in his department. I found myself trying my best not to get as drunk as I had previously, but the stress from the impending situation had me on an edge that I had never experienced before. Feeling the weight of George's life on my shoulders, I had my mind made up to see this through till the very end. During the few days of waiting, I did muster up the courage to call my mother. Though the conversation was brief and mostly included her berating me for taking this case, it was still nice to hear her voice and know that she was okay. All I had to do was sit out by the pool, watching countless people cavorting about. I was cautious of going outside in fear of running into more of those men willing to gun me down in broad daylight. I decided to go inside to the lobby where the maitre d' was working at the front desk. 
I hadn't had many conversations with him since our musical foray into the painted jungle of a bird in a cage, but we still always shared a silent smile when we saw each other. I sat at those tables near the area where people waited to check in and out and watch the world go by. I could tell that John was thinking of something. Of what? I cannot say, but he stared off across the lobby as if looking into an endless void. Just then the phone rang. The Major D picks it up. He listens, then turns to me holding the phone out. It's for you. I took the phone and placed it to my ear. Hello? Hey, it's David. Listen, I tried to tell my chief what was going on, but he isn't going for it. I'm afraid you're not getting any help from us. He acted strange about the whole thing. Kept saying that the case was closed and there was no way he was opening it back up. I'm sorry. I did all I could. Another roadblock in the way. It's as if the deeper I go into this case, the more they want to deter me. It must mean I'm getting close. I have Marshall's testimony. I have George's letters. All I need now is the final piece of the puzzle. I need physical evidence linking Galvin Young to the murder of George Mead's parents, and I think I know where that is. It's fine, David, I said in a hushed tone. Meet me tonight at the storage unit off the highway. What are we doing there? They're going to be closed. Exactly. Right before I hung up, he interrupted. I'm sorry, Jane. That's where I draw the line. I hope you get into the archives. I'll even put a word in for you to my boss. But I cannot stand by and let you knowingly break the law. Breaking and entering into a storage unit is not something that I can allow to happen. I'm still a man of the law. You don't understand. All the meat stuff was put into this storage unit, and it's been there for 20 years. But the name on the ledger is Reginald Marley, the man who hired me. And no, you don't understand. The jig's up, Jane. I should have stopped you before it got this far. This is getting out of control. You got people trying to shoot you, taking advice from convicted criminals. When does this stop? I need to get to the bottom of this. I need some more time. You're messing with one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. He almost had you killed, for God's sake. You're putting your life on the line, and for who? Some strange man who hired you to investigate a dead guy? It's more than that, and you know it. We're talking about somebody's life. You're right! We're talking about yours. If you do this, I will have to arrest you for your own good. Just go home, Dane. It's best for everyone. I didn't say anything for a moment. I stood with that thought. The only person I had grown to trust in this entire endeavor, and he's promising to arrest me. I don't need your permission. I said in a cold tone, Jane, I'm warning you. Don't do this. I hung up the phone. I turned to the janitor's closet where the major d kept his records. You got a crowbar I could borrow? Chapter 10 A Robber's Journey I had a taxi drop me off a few miles away from the storage facility. I camped out in front of the storage unit's main office and waited for night to fall, doing my best to stay out of sight squatting down behind some bushes. Once the clerk finally turned off the lights and headed out of his steam room of an office and home for the night, I snuck out from my hiding spots with my crowbar and flashlight I also lifted from the janitor's closet in the hotel and snuck onto the lot. It wasn't hard to do. The lot wasn't gated. There was no security patrol in the area. There was only the locks and the doors to each of the units. There were about 30 storage units in total on the lot, with each one looking as identical as the last, but my sights were set on the reason I came, number 27. Though it was just the same as the others, with his orange grated door that opened vertically, locked to the concrete foundation, there was an ominous look to it, almost spectral in nature. Maybe it was the way the light screwed to the top of the unit shined dimly on it reflecting off the night. Or maybe it was the emotional journey it took to get to this point. But whatever it was, the closer I got to the unit, the stronger the uncomfortable feeling in my stomach grew. It had been almost a week since I first arrived in LA. And I've barely slept a wink. Consumed. Doesn't even begin to describe the frame of mind that I found myself in. Here I stand in front of the storage unit, more than sure that I will find the evidence I need to put the final pieces of the mystery together. With my crowbar, I pried open the lock and raised the door to the unit. I used the flashlight I gathered from the storage unit closet back at the hotel to shine the light into the unit and with it stepped into a decade long forgotten. What lay ahead of me was a cluster of memorabilia that brought me even deeper into the Mead's tragic life. First was a piano, fitting that it was the first thing I'd see. The very instrument that allowed George to escape from his walls and brought tears to my eyes for the first time in years. 
There it stood, almost symbolic of George's legacy, a hollow, dusty piece of wood. There I stood, determined to restore it back to its beautiful nature. I blew away some of the dust, allowing myself a better look. Then I remembered what George had written down in his letter about the piano being harmless, yet being able to bring a man's tears. Even as it stood now, it was a silent killer. Even in its dormant state, it seemed so peaceful yet deadly. On a rack just next to that were his mother's clothing, all wrapped in plastic as to be preserved in time inside this cold and dark unit. I flipped through each item of clothing to find a black dress with a piece of the collar torn off, yet the incision seemed clean, not ripped like the evidence box suggested. It was as if it was cut, not torn. Then I remembered how Marshall had told me about Galvin shooting Mrs. Mead into the ocean below. It is possible that one of his men tore the dress while pulling her out of the car, but if she was shot into the ocean, how did they retrieve the dress? Another plot hole missing in this twisting narrative. I looked for another black dress on the rack, but it was the only one. I shined my flashlight towards the back of the unit and to even more memorabilia. There were pieces of furniture, sealed boxes labeled with descriptions such as awards, hats, and things of the like. As I was nearing the back of the storage unit, I had my flashlight trained on a frame painting lined up against the left wall. They ranged from individual portraits of Mr. and Mrs. Mead, which finally gave me a look at the two tragic figures gunned down before their time, and there were paintings of them together. There was only one photo that caught my eye, but as I walked towards it, I stumbled upon another sealed box. I bent down to get a read of the label to see the word records painted on it. All of George's work, his entire childhood, was locked away in a box right in front of me, laying at my feet. I imagined the countless hours of him writing music, playing it over and over again until he got it just right. I imagined the thousands of people who would put his records on a player and be transported to another world over and over again, escaping their reality and floating along with George to a place of his own creation. A place where freedom had an expression and destiny was intertwined and the scope of the world around oneself. As much as I wanted to see the beauty that laid inside, I refused the temptation to open it and moved it out of the way. I made my way over to a very unusual photo I never expected to find in this unit, though it may be the only evidence that connected the Meads to Galvin Young, so I can see why they would hide it in here. The frame was of a golden variety, but I believe it was only painted gold because it didn't shimmer off my flashlight as real gold would. The picture was of Galvin Young, looking about 20 years younger standing next to Mr. and Mrs. Mead and a young kid that must have been George in front of a beach house. The sign next to them read, Recording Studio, owned by Galvin Young and Global Pictures, with the address printed below it, Venice Beach, California. It was then I smirked, remembering how David wanted to take me to Venice Beach the first night we had met. Even so, I was under the impression that the Meads were against working with Galvin, so why are they all in this picture together? Why did Galvin buy this recording studio? That's when I took a closer look at the picture to see Mr. Mead is not smiling. His wife looks completely uncomfortable with Galvin's arm around her waist and the kid in the picture, the young George, stopped me in my tracks. There was something about him that looked familiar. I got within inches of the picture. I had no idea what was drawing me so close to this kid, whether it was his sad expression that laid on his face that reminded me of myself as a child, or was it because it was the first time I had ever seen a picture of him and I have been feeling so emotionally attached to this poor kid since the beginning. But whatever it was, I swore I'd seen him before. Then it hit me. I knew this kid. I had seen him before. In fact, I met him only a week ago. This kid was the younger but spitting image of one Reginald Marley, the man who hired me to investigate the disappearance of George Meade. At first, I doubted myself. It couldn't be, but as I stared at the picture longer and longer, it became clearer and clearer. This kid? The missing kid is none other than Reginald Marley. My confused mind raced to figure out how this could be. As I scrambled to find answers, once again, I only found myself asking more questions. A car door slamming shut woke me from my shocked trance. I turned quickly to the entrance of the storage unit and turned off my flashlight. I inched out of the unit and peeked around the corner to find that David and another police officer were surveying the area. Since I never told David the number of the unit, it would take him a minute to find me. But that's all I had. One minute to escape. There was no place to hide that they wouldn't find me. Once I left the unit, I was out in the open. Alas, they were headed straight for me. It would only be seconds before they realized that this was the only unit with the door wide open. I needed a distraction and quick. That's when I looked down at the crowbar in my hand, as black as the night. I looked around for a place to throw it where they wouldn't see where it had come from. 
I flung the crowbar as hard as I could across the lot to the storage unit across from 27 and down a ways. The rattling of the crowbar against the steel grated door shocked them to their core. They turned and looked opposite my direction. They aimed their flashlights and headed over toward the noise. I used this as a diversion. But once again, the openness of the area gave me no cover, and I must have caught David's eye. He turned quickly and aimed his flashlight at me. Like a thief in a gangster movie, I froze. Don't move, Jane, he yelled, and just like a robber in one of those gangster flicks, I took off running. David yelled and took off after me. I frantically looked for a way to escape and found only two viable options, steal their police car or continue running in a hope that I can outrun them. I opted not to steal the cop car and to take my chances on foot. Not out of any pity or courtesy to David, I figured that I didn't want to add stealing a cop car to my list of offenses this evening. I hesitated, looking for a way to escape, and that's when David caught up to me. He grabbed me forcefully by the shoulders and slammed me hard against the side of the police car. I told you to stay out of this. Do you know how dangerous these people are? They have connections everywhere. They can hurt you or worse. I'm driving you out of the city tonight, he said quite loudly and angrily into my ear. I could hear the rattling of his handcuffs as he took them off his belt. Venice! Venice Beach! I managed to muster out. It was the only thing I can think of that could get me out of this jam I was in. He turned me around and brought me face to face with him. What? He said with a fierceness that I had never seen in his eyes before or anyone's eyes since my father's drunken tirades back in my youth. His look made me feel like that scared little girl back in Texas, trying to say anything to save her and her mother from a beating. Often she could save herself, but rarely could she save her mother. Her poor, poor mother, her fearful mother, ill-fated from the moment she woke in the morning to be abused at night. And yet, I now know how she felt. Not to think that for one second David was going to beat on me, but the fear crept in just the same, and I've never felt so scared. It's as if the scariest thing is not the beating, it's surviving the beating, only to take another one. What did you say? He screamed once more. Galvin Young owns a recording studio in Venice Beach. That's where George is being held. I hoped and prayed that he believed me. I had never prayed since leaving the church lifestyle back in Texas for the Vegas trip. Suddenly, the rage in his eyes dispersed and I could see a human being seeping through. It was a look identical to my father's look in the mornings after his brutal assault on my mother the night before. A kinder, gentler man emerged, one filled with remorse and regret, but not for the actions of the previous night, but the knowledge that he knew that it would only be a matter of time before he did it again. Are you sure? He said like a man who desperately wanted to believe me. Damn it, Jane. Are you sure? I'm sure. I said with a nod. His entire body froze. He looked down at the ground, and then back at his partner, and then back at me. You better be right about this, he said as he put his handcuffs back on his belt and let me go. Get in the car. If you're wrong about this, I'm driving you back to Vegas tonight. Deal, I said. I opened the passenger door only to be stopped by David's cough. The back, he said with a nod that motioned me to the back of the car. His partner opened the door for me and I got in. When the door shut, I was alone in the car. I couldn't hear them, but I could see David and his partner engaged in a bit of a back and forth, with David ultimately convincing his partner to go along with his plan. David got in the driver's seat and his partner in the passenger seat. This is John George, my partner, David said, and he'll be the one to slap the cuffs on you if you're leading us on the runaround. I'm flattered, I responded with a smug confidence. We drove off to Venice Beach and right to the heart of the mystery. Chapter 11 A Beach Vacation we made the drive from Hollywood to Venice Beach in just under a half an hour. David floored it down the highway, never stopping for a red light or obeying the speed limit. It's amazing how many laws you can break when you work for the law. The entire time I tried to explain the complex story of George Meade to David and John, but I doubt that they were paying attention or took it seriously enough to comprehend the entire story as I conveyed it to them. Honestly, that never mattered to me. I hadn't the faintest idea of what lay ahead but I was ready for whatever may come, even if it meant my own demise. As we drove along the pier, I saw different sides of Los Angeles. I soon realized that it wasn't the hustle and bustle of the glamour of fame that attracted people to this place. It was the calmness of the night that compelled them to come. There was something about the stillness of silence, the therapeutic sounds of the ocean waves that made this place a paradise. Then I saw the same house that was in the picture hung in the storage unit. Stop the car. I said with a seriously low tone that I could tell surprised David and John by the look they shared. This is the place, huh? Creepy. That's when I took another look around this peaceful paradise, and as I stepped out of the car, it hit me. 
just why this city has such a mixed reputation. Beyond the serenity of its exterior lies an evil only fathomable through the cusp of surrender. For those who believe in the devil may look into his eyes and see the truth, but to those unsuspecting, he may appear as an angel in disguise. The sign naming the place a recording studio owned by Galvin Young was gone, but that was the only thing that had changed about this place from the photo. John, you stay here and look out for anyone suspicious. We may have been followed, I said to him. I don't take orders from a woman, he responded in a tone that made me want to knock his block off. Then take orders from me, David said firmly. I came all the way down here as a favor, not an order. You're my partner, not my boss. I had had enough of his insolence right then and there and decided to put an end to it. This man is the most powerful man in Hollywood. He had two people killed, kidnapped a little kid, and held him hostage for 20 years. You really want us to get caught off guard by this guy? Or do you want to stay your ass right here and make sure we don't end up swimming with the damn fishes? I went off on a lecture that saw me ending only inches from the man's face. He wasn't much taller than me, nor was he much bigger than me, though he thought he was. He swallowed hard, so hard that it made an uncomfortable sound. He nodded in agreement on my freshly laid plan. I turned to David, who had an impressed look on his face. He pointed the way and I led him into the house. I decided not to turn on the lights in the house after entering through the front door. One of my main hints that we were already being watched was the fact that the front door was unlocked and basically open for us. Another was that there was a faint sound of piano music coming from somewhere in the house, so I decided it would be safer to use our flashlight to survey the place. On the outside it looked like a nice townhouse to call home. The first floor resembled that theme, it was homey to say the least. There was a living room type area with a couch and a television set on the green carpet giving a distinct look from the hardwood floors that covered the rest of the place. We entered deeper into the house to find a kitchen. A quaint little area for someone to make themselves something to eat, granite countertops, plenty of storage space, and a wonderful view of the ocean. This place was state of the art. Whoever lived here must have been one well off son of a bitch, exclaimed David quietly. As I opened the cupboard, I began to inquire that he may be more wrong than he could have ever imagined. As I explored the kitchen, I saw only two of everything. Two glasses, two plates, two forks, two knives, and saw only one couch with two seats. Then I began to realize that it wasn't a luxurious beach house, but a prison built to tease a man with beautiful views of an astonishing life just outside the door that he could never get out of. I grew a sick feeling in my gut picturing poor George Mead trapped in this very house all by his lonesome for 20 years. My heart could barely take it. I pictured him as a little boy, lost, grieving, and afraid. I could only imagine how that manifested itself in him. The tears he must have shed, the angry fits he must have thrown, the depression that must have sunk in after 20 years. It almost reminded me of my mother, all alone out there in the backyard, dancing for an audience of only one. Though she never knew I was watching, sometimes I would suspect she saw me through the bedroom window and chose to ignore me. Many times I found myself wanting to clap as she came down for a final bow, but found myself unable to disturb her cathartic trance. It takes a real monster to lock up a kid and keep him in this place for almost his entire life. I could imagine what George did to pass the time, seeing there weren't many luxuries to being trapped inside a house all alone. My only hope was that he created some sort of imaginary friend to help them get through the pain of loneliness. I made my way out of the kitchen over to a window near the back of the house to find that it had been broken in. I peered out of the hole that was created by the impact and saw the glass lying on the grass outside and not inside. Someone, and at that point I had a pretty good clue who, had broken out, not in. That's when David homed in on the faint piano music and found where it was coming from. Down here, he whispered. I turned to see him standing in front of a door. The music's coming from behind this door. He opened the door with ease and we stared down into a wooden staircase leading to a basement where the music was loudly coming from. The basement light was already on and dimly lit the area around it. We shared a look of trepidation as David took out his gun. He looked at me, who was only holding a flashlight. No way. Have a knife, he whispered and took out his pocket knife and handed it to me. I looked on at this comically small pocket knife with a sense of great fear not reassurance cursing through me as this thing couldn't even poke a hole through a piece of plastic. I handed him back the knife. He looked at me confused until I pulled out my pistol. Let's go, I said and began to walk down the steps. You better know how to use that thing, he uttered as he followed me. As we exited the staircase, we entered a recording studio. The studio was only about 50 feet long and 20 feet wide. We looked around to see another couch was placed down here up against the back wall. Up against the right wall was a desk littered with papers. I went over and examined the papers on top and quickly realized as I shuffled them around that they weren't sheets of music I had first thought. They were more letters to Reginald, tons more, hundreds more, opened up a drawer on the desk to find even more, more and more letters to Reginald from George, but never once a return, never once a response. 
These weren't ever mailed or sent. They were just left here, unread, collecting dust. But why? While I was inspecting the letters, David must have made his way over to the mixing board that was controlling the volume of the music that had lured us down here. He wasn't an expert at music recording, but he figured out how to shut the music off. That's when we both looked into the recording booth on the right of the studio, a pitch black room behind a glass wall. We couldn't make out much, but an outline of a man sitting inside. David and I looked for the button to turn the light on. He found it and hit the light, and who stood in front of us but none other than Galvin Young, sitting at the piano, and by the look on his face, he had been waiting for us. Another indication he was expecting us were the two large men behind him. Just then, the door to the first floor slammed shut and we could make out the sound of the door locking. We were trapped. Galvin exited the booth followed closely by his two guards. We aimed our guns at them but couldn't decide on who to target, Galvin or one of his two goons, both of which had guns. So nice to see you. He said with a crack of a smile imprinted on his face. He looked over at me walking forward, causing us to walk back. Miss Danger, I must give you some sort of congratulations. Never did I think you would get this far. They backed us up against the couch, and we nearly fell backwards. Now Gavin looked down at the gun in David's hand with a sigh. Officer, let's not do anything we'd regret, Galvin said in a condescending tone. I could say the same to you. You can't shoot an officer of the law, David warned him. Well, if you can't buy them, shoot them. That's what I always say. He said with a sadistic chuckle as he looked back to his two guards who menacingly chuckled right along with him. You're not gonna buy me, David threatened. Of course, copper. We both know you can't buy a heart that's already been purchased. But I know you won't fire that gun, cause if you fire your gun, we fire ours. Both of Galvin's goons turned their aim over to me. What do you say, officer? Fire your gun. We fire ours, or put your gun down, and you both come with us. David took a second to think about it, but it was obvious to everyone in the room that there was no fair trade here, so he lowered his gun and Galvin quickly took it and handed it to one of his men. Then he turned his attention to me and my gun. It was as if he knew I would never shoot him, not at least before finding out where George was. And he was right. Yours too, Miss Danger, he said confidently, and I complied, handing over my gun to him. Very wise, Galvin said smugly. Tie them. And tie us they did. They tied our hands behind our backs, which I thought was a bit of overkill, but I wasn't the one calling the shots. Now was I? They led us back up the stairs and we stopped in front of the locked door. Galvin let the charge and knocked twice. Then he paused. Then he knocked once again. Another slight pause. Then he knocked once more. The clicking of the lock being unhinged with the indication that the door was being unlocked. The door opened, and there was John George, David's partner, holding the door open for Galvin. Galvin's goons led us back up to the first floor. You snake! David snapped at John. Don't start talking out of turn now, Galvin instructed. You honestly thought I didn't have police on my payroll. Galvin stopped in the entrance walkway and us with him. You see, David, when I offered you ten grand to get her out of town, I expected you to do just that. You had her in the back of your car. All you had to do was drive her out of town. You're a murderer and a monster, I yelled back. He took kindly to this, and that I wasn't expecting. He smirked and made his way over to me. He gently caressed my face with the back of his hand. He followed that up with a hard smack to the side of my face that reverberated throughout the quiet room. David jumped but was held back by a guard. Family is important to me. Galvin inserted, gripping the side of my face so that I would look at him right in his eyes. But family... Much like business has a hierarchy. Everyone has a role, and the woman's role is to be seen and not heard. When my mother would act out of turn, my father put her in her place. Your father sounds like an asshole. It's not personal. It's family. He took a deep breath and backed away, letting go of my face. I have to give him credit. I've taken a lot of hits in my life, and I can say from experience that there was a considerable force behind that one. I was afraid for my life as anyone would be, but this feeling was familiar to me, a second-hand notion of a first-hand experience. I felt like my mother in that instance, as my hands were tied behind my back, her hands were tied to her marriage and her child, physically overmatched, emotionally overpowered, and in that very moment, as was I. You never know helplessness until you're completely helpless. But as I looked into the brown eyes of Galvin Young, I didn't see the shallow memory of a man I once loved as my mother saw in my father. I saw a monster, the devil in a man's skin. My hands weren't as tight as hers. All I needed was one shot, 
and I take him out without hesitation. Bag them. Calvin ordered, and his men placed black bags over our heads, and just like that, everything went black. Again, overkill. Chapter 12 A Night to Kill For As the vehicles we were in came to a stop, and the doors opened, the smell of the ocean and the sound of the crashing waves gave away our location. They forced us to walk down, far, far down the wooden pier, and only when the sound of the waves were crashing against our own ears did they tell us to stop, put us on our knees, and took the bags off our heads. There we knelt, David and I side by side, the ocean as our backdrop, lit by the night and a few streetlights that graced the pier. The ocean breeze wafting through my hair, the smell hitting my nostrils stronger than any scent I've ever smelt but booze. This was an intoxication all of its own. In front of us stood three of Galvin's armed goons, including John George in his police uniform, the same uniform David had on. Yet, here they stand, on opposite sides. Galvin stood in between us and his men, staring past us and out into the dark ocean. As scared as I was, I tried my best to hide it by forcing the anger I felt to the forefront. I can tell by glancing over at David that he was doing the same, just a much better job of it. After a brief moment of silence, and what I believe to be shock that this whole situation has escalated to this point, Galvin took his eyes from the ocean and dropped them onto us. As I looked into his eyes, I didn't see what I expected to. Instead of the evil glare that he had in the recording studio when he had his cornered, I saw sadness. I would have described him as a hollow shell of a human being in which the devil called home, but in this moment I saw a humanity that I didn't know he had. He opened his mouth to say something but stammered over the words. A long piece of spit hung from his top lip and attached to the bottom that showed his lips were dry. He broke it with his tongue as he wet his lips. You see, family is a complicated matter. My father was a soldier, and when his tour of duty was over, he ended up here in Los Angeles, directing the city of many dreams, yet he couldn't escape his nightmares. See, he never recovered from the war. Every time there was a loud thud, you could see his body convulse. He took an uncomfortable breath as he began to pace. I tried to deduce what he might be thinking, but he seemed so scattered that I couldn't even begin to paint a picture of the multitude of thoughts going around his head. My father never showed any emotion. Not to my mother, not to me, or to my siblings. But just because you don't show love to someone doesn't mean you don't feel it. Family isn't perfect, but it's family. Now my mother's dead. My father's dead. My brother died in the service. Well, I survived the war and came home to a father who hadn't. Took his own life with a gunshot to the head. I go off to a world at war and come home to see that while America had won, I had lost more than I could have ever fathomed. You want to know the last words my father said to me before I left for the war? Family is everything. And so, there I was left without one. I needed to get out of the house, so I bought a ticket to see a child prodigy, all the rage in Britain. And what I heard touched me in a place I've never been touched before. My heart was warmed when he finished playing. I realized I couldn't live without him. This world can be so cold. But no matter how cold it can seem, Hollywood will always be colder. And his music provided the warmth that I needed to stay alive. I didn't see George as a way to make money. I saw George as my way home. He offered me something I'd lost. A family. I need him. More than he'll ever know. He ended his speech nearly in tears, though I wasn't sure how much of that to buy. I have to admit, I was touched by his story. I grew some sympathy for the psychopath standing in front of me. You killed a boy's parents and held him hostage for 20 years, I said to him, trying my best to get him to see the heartlessness of his actions. They were going back to Britain. They were going to put him in school, and he would have never played again. They were going to take him from me. From all of us. I wanted to share his music with the world. They acted selfishly. They left me no choice. Just then, I was reminded how the Major D and I felt after listening to George's music. We were both in tears by the end of the song. I realized that's what Galvin craved in his life. Men like Galvin, they grow up with unfeeling, repressed fathers, so they become unfeeling and repressed. Much like myself, George's music was the only thing that made him feel. Taking that away was too much for him to bear. That's when Galvin turned to one of his men and held out his hand. The man placed the pistol in it. He turned back to us and I saw the pistol, a 44 Magnum, glistening in the light of the pier. I know you know where he is, Jane. I need you to tell me. No. 
Galvin commanded as he stepped forward, closing the ten-foot gap that was between he and us. I don't know where he is, and even if I did, I would never tell you, I shouted. He didn't take that so kindly, wiping the tears from his eyes. He swallowed hard as he kept creeping forward. You kidnapped a kid, you sick bastard. I would do it all again. I would kill a thousand people for him. I would travel to the ends of the earth. I would do anything for George, Galvin said as he came to a stop only five feet from us. He's family. Bang! The bullet shot from Galvin's gun and struck David right in the chest. The very force of the bullet pushed David back off the pier and into the waters below. His body was washed away with the tide and I found myself alone yet again. It took all I had to keep from screaming. I refused to give Galvin the satisfaction of hearing me scream like a helpless woman. Like that of Mrs. Mead, I only turned my gaze up to the sky knowing my time was nearing its end. Once again, I was face to face with my father. I could see every inch of his rage-filled scowl staring down at me and my mother. I could remember the sound of the smacks and hits as my mother would shriek with every blow. I would hide under my bed doing the best I could to go as far from the situation as possible, yet there is no escaping reality, no matter how hard one tries. I was reminded of George Mead's letter, in which he stated the same thing. He would play the piano to escape, but no matter how far he went in his mind, his body still belonged to the corruption of this world, to the coldness of reality. His family murdered, his freedom gone, his humanity stripped from him. I could remember the sorrow on my father's face in the morning as I came out for breakfast, the way he looked at me with tears in his eyes, but unable to say any words as if he knew nothing he said would have made it right. I could see my old childhood room as if I was standing right in the middle of it, a bedroom window with a view of our backyard and seemingly all of rural Texas, vast fields stretching for as far as the eye can see. I used to imagine running towards those fields, the warm Texas sun drenching my skin as the wind carried me to freedom. Sometimes I found myself running into the fence that separated our backyard from the rest of the world. I could remember the view of my childhood home fading from sight as my mother's friend drove us away from that little house in Texas into the train station with nothing but a bag full of clothes. I remember the swing club the night Reginald approached me at the bar, the smell of perfume and alcohol. I can remember the crooner on stage talking about recording a song for Global Pictures and Galvin Young. That made me chuckle a bit. You can't write it any better than that. That's when I heard the clicking of Galvin pulling back the hammer on his gun, readying to fire another bullet. And there I was again, back on the pier, hands tied behind my back, Galvin closing in on me, his gun aimed directly at me, threatening to end the course of my life with just one pull of the trigger. Last chance. Tell me where he is, Jane, Galvin yelled, and yet I had nothing to tell him, for I truly did not know, and wholeheartedly would have never told him if I did. Here I am, Galvin. A voice came out of the dark behind us all. We turned to see a man approaching us, heading right for Galvin. A smile grew on Galvin's face as Reginald walked out of the shadows and into the light of the night. He was dressed in a brown jacket with the same black hat he wore the night of the swing club, lowered on his face. Much of his appearance was covered by the night, but one thing shimmered in the light of the pier, his 44 Magnum aimed directly at Galvin. The sight of the pistol made Galvin's smile disappear, and Galvin's men turned their guns toward Reginald. Reginald did not come alone, as with him came the police, whom surrounded the area with cars and men blocking the exit for Galvin and his men, and for me and himself. George, I've missed you so very much, Galvin said to him, and now I can finally put the pieces of the puzzle together. There's a reason the kid in the photo looked just like Reginald, because he is Reginald, but there is no Reginald. No, it has occurred to me that Reginald Marley is simply an alias made up to cover the identity of the kidnapped kid George Meade. Now after 20 years, that kid has escaped and he divulged a plan to exact his revenge on Galvin Young. Why he chose me, I did not know, but no matter the reason, I was glad to be of service. I had to get away from you, George responded in a sinister tone as he stepped 10 feet from Galvin. You needed your space. Fair enough. We all need to get away every once in a while. At least you've come back to me. No, I needed to get you out in the open. I knew if I escaped and someone came snooping, you would stop at nothing to find me. I didn't know where it would lead, but I knew it would draw you out. And now look where you are. The same place where you murdered my parents. The man who killed. Come to die. No, no, why would you do that? You're not going to shoot me, George. We're family. You killed my family. You kept me locked away like a bird in a cage. For 20 years, all I've ever wanted to do was toss your lifeless carcass into that water and watch it float away, just like you did to my parents. They would have taken you from me, from all of us. Remember that, 
Remember what I told you, Galvin pleaded. Your music saves lives. It saved mine. Your music has saved this world. You did that. That's what you've always wanted, isn't it? All I've ever wanted was to have a family, and you took that from me. I protected you. I cared for you. I loved you. You kidnapped me. Galvin looked around at the scene, the flashing lights of the police cars, the officers who had their guns aimed at him and his men. It finally became clear that he was on the wrong end of this setup. What are you going to do, huh? Huh, George? Arrest me. I have friends on the force. Powerful friends. You can't win. None of you can win! This is my town. Hollywood is mine. I run the biggest movie studio on the planet. I own all of you. I'll have you all arrested. I'll have you all put in jail. I'll make the rest of your miserable lives hell. And just then, George pulled the hammer back on his gun. He said nothing, but Galvin heard everything. In his icy stare, he saw the truth. There was no doubt then that George was there to end his life. He had no escape. He had no security to protect him, and the man he considered family is aiming a gun directly at him, only seconds from the trigger. You pull that trigger, you'll die. Galvin reasoned. I can't protect you anymore. They'll kill you. Galvin yelled. I'm okay with that. It's about time I see my family again. As long as you die with me. George said as he pulled the trigger. The bang from his gun was such a sound I would never forget. Not only was it loud, but it echoed. Oh, it echoed through the silence of the nights. I was rocketed into the waters below as Galvin's men opened fire on George. The freezing water devoured my skin until I didn't feel the cold anymore. I found myself under the pier where David was grabbing onto a pillar. He pulled my head above the raging water where every other wave I could take a breath. I went to speak after I gasped for air, but he quickly put his finger over my mouth to keep me quiet. Then he pointed to his bulletproof vest and the dent the bullet left when it hit his vest and ricocheted off. The rushing water and the sound of crashing waves, along with my own struggle to stay afloat, distracted me from the shootout above. When I finally grabbed onto a pillar and gained my composure, I tried to look up through the planks, but I could see nothing. I tried to listen, but it was quiet. As quiet as I've ever heard. I've never heard a silence quite like that. So silent, but yet so loud. I looked at David who struggled to peer through the wooden planks. There were five thuds. One came from my left, one from our right, in which I have come to believe were the bodies of both Galvin Young and George Mead hitting the floor. The other three came from a little way down the pier, which I suspected were Galvin's two goons and John George who were gunned down by the surrounding police officers. I would have camped under that pier all night, but David urged me to trust him. How could I not? After he had just saved my life. The police helped us out of the water and put blankets around us. Chapter 13 A Fitting End The rest of the night was pretty by the book. They took us in for questioning. We told them the truth. They let us go. Soon after the papers published the truth about Galvin Young and George Meade, George was considered a martyr. As he did deserve as much, Galvin was considered a monster, though I'm still not sure to this day that's a fitting title. He was more complex than that. I'm not sure what I would call him, but a monster is not it. George Meade's body was transported back to London, where he was buried. They placed him in between the ceremonial plots that represented his parents. It took me a while to realize why he planned this whole thing, why he confronted Galvin instead of having the cops arrest him. Then it hit me. He found a freedom in death that he never had in life. He could never get his life back. He could never get his parents back. But he could sacrifice his life for his parents, avenge their deaths, and die on his terms. I can only imagine him playing the piano for his parents as I write this. Marshall was released from prison after his 20 year stay. He got to see his daughter and wife again. And as for me, well, I had a train to catch. I went back to my hotel to gather my belongings. There I found a letter on my bed with no return address. I tucked it away for later. It was going to be a long train ride. I said a loving goodbye to the maitre d' and we shared one last teary-eyed listen to one of George's songs. David accompanied me to the train. We said nothing the entire ride over. Even waiting on the platform, we were silent. It wasn't until the train came to the station that he turned to me after picking up my bag. Can't you stay in LA? Sure, it's dangerous. But you have to admit, it has its appeal. I took one last look around, honestly trying to buy time before boarding the train. It's a wonderful city, I said, 
but I have to go home. My mother needs me, and as much as I hate to admit it, I need her. Well, will you be visiting soon? I'm sure I'll be around. I said as I leaned forward to take my bag from him. He must have saw that as a different type of lean, because he kissed me. We shared that passionate moment together. It felt as if the entire world faded to the background, and it was just us. I must say, it had the same effect on me as listening to George Newt's song. Tears came to my eyes as I took my bag and boarded the train back to Las Vegas. As the train drove down the tracks, I watched it all fade from view. David, LA, Hollywood, and I was headed home to where I belong. That's when I decided to open up George's letter to me, the last letter he ever wrote. Dear Miss Danger, I'm afraid you have to excuse me for my lack of explanation of my well-laid plan. I feared that you would see that it wasn't as well laid as I once thought. I do hope you will forgive me for putting you in certain peril and understand why I needed you and only you to help me finally put an end to this saga of murder and kidnapping that has plagued my life for over 20 years. Over the years I have become somewhat of an expert in the art of writing letters to oneself. Allow me to indulge your patience one last time for this I will gladly explain. Twenty years of forced solitude teaches a man nothing. It teaches his soul everything. My soul, as you may be aware, lies within my music, and when I discovered that Galvin Young was using the pseudonym of Reginald Marley to pass off my work, I did not take it as a slap across the face, but as an opportunity. I found it of utmost importance that I become acquainted with this newfound character, Sir Reginald Marley, hence the letters, some of which I found quite of use when approaching you. I never for once saw the conjured apparition that was Reginald Marley as real, but I still find a certain legitimacy in writing for oneself. There's an honesty one has when they suspect that only they will ever be the reader of their own work. Their goal becomes not to impress, but to educate the only reader that matters, oneself. This very potency is what I found in your written ad in the paper. It was as if you were writing to convince yourself of your legitimacy as a private investigator, instead of trying aimlessly to attract the eyes of people who cannot, or for lack of a better term, refuse to see. It is this that attracted me to you, and it is because of this that I am forever grateful. Seeing that my time is borrowed, I find the word forever quite ironic, and yet, at the same time, an understatement, for it is the responsibility of a person to educate their soul, because it is the soul of a person that will linger on for all eternity while the body decays. And now, because of your relentless persistence of the truth, my soul is at rest. I cannot find a word written throughout history, none in the great reverence of the Latin language nor in the British vocabulary that can ever thank you enough for allowing me to rest easily. For the Lord knows it has been an uneasy time, and if my suspicions were correct, both I and Galvin Young are dead, and you are the hero of the tale, and I suspect there will be many more to come. I regret that it is here that I must write my final words to you. Of course, you never expected me to leave you without a parting gift. Though Galvin Young has reaped the rewards of my work for 20 years, there is one pot that he was never able to get his hands on. My parents tucked away everything that I had earned during my playing days as a child in a British bank. This saving deposit, I'm sure, has accrued interest over the years, and now I leave it all to you. I leave this to you without any hesitation, for I know you will provide a good life for you and your mother. For after all, family is everything. My only wish is that you use whatever is left to help those in need, for in a world where justice fails and the rich capitulate to their greed, people need someone to believe in. People need a symbol of hope. The very hope you have given me, my hope, Miss Jane Danger, is that you will be the light in this dark world, shining for all to see. Your humble pianist, George Meade. Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage is an official copyright of Avery Goodwin. Voice recording by Avery Goodwin. Sound mixing by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Score by Averex. Foley by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Some of the sounds heard here were downloaded royalty-free from pixabay.com.